Hello. I think a lot about death. Partly it comes from reaching my age in life, but it's also really ever since I read Ernest Becker's wonderful book, The Denial of Death, in which Becker argues that our awareness of death, maybe our ways of avoiding that awareness, drive all sorts of types of behaviour, kinds of mania. Becker wanted to say, he wanted to say that Freud was wrong that sex was the big thing that that overshadowed our lives and drove our subconscious. He wanted to say that death was. And we know death is often described as the last taboo. We know as a Western developed society, we aren't very good at it. We suspect other people are better. We, We know that still medicine tends to treat death as defeat despite its inevitability. But Somehow knowing all this, well, it doesn't make me feel I'm any more ready. And I don't think it makes us as a society feel we're any better at managing this great part of our existence. So one of the questions I want to explore with my distinguished guest today is, can we prepare better as individuals? Can we manage death better as a society? And also, Given this podcast's interest in leadership, what does our awareness and avoidance of death do to shape our ambitions and ways of living in life? You're listening to Forward Vision with Matthew Taylor, the podcast to help you think differently, feel differently and lead differently. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. So I'm delighted to welcome Henry Marsh. Henry's a retired neurosurgeon and a best-selling author. His most recent book is And Finally, Matters of Life and Death, which I enormously enjoyed reading. Welcome to the podcast, Henry. Uh, Hello. Henry, this is a question I ask every guest, but I guess with you it feels slightly more poignant or relevant. How are you? Reasonably well. I'd gone lame, I have an ankle problem, and I had some recurrent symptoms in my rear end, which I was worried my my can't climb back. So I, I got my PSA measured, and it's probably all right. So I live in sort of six months intervals, waiting, waiting to see the next PSA result. At the moment, I'm still in remission. Well, that's but, great to hear. And I, I think I'll start there, because one of the interesting things about the book I, I found, and I hope this isn't a kind of spoiler alert, it isn't a novel after all, is that in a way one reads the book, you write it in a pretty pessimistic frame of mind about your diagnosis with cancer. It is written by somebody who who feels they may be close to death. But then at the end, partly because you subject yourself to some very effective treatment, the outlook is is looking somewhat better. So, you know, you called the book and finally, it, it isn't a final. In, in that sense, it doesn't join. I, I'm thinking of other books that I've read by people who are close to death. It's not one of those books, is it? No, it's not. And the title is partly a joke. Because perhaps I don't intend to write another book about myself. It's kind of and finally. And also it's a joke because at the end of television news, you have a light-hearted item at the end and finally. So it's a bit of a pun, really. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm almost 74. We all have to die sooner or later. And what I find extraordinary, how hard I find to accept my immortality. Rationally, I'm completely prepared to be dead. 
But I, I just emotionally can't accept. I want to go living forever. It's ridiculous. I can only assume that our our love of life, our fear of dying, is really hardwired into our brains. Yeah, well, that's obviously one of the things that was fascinating for me about the book. And there were lots of parts of your book that I really kind of empathised with. I kind of felt like I was in a room having a conversation with you at various points. But let's start with this question of, can we prepare? And I agree with you. And I, I, it reminds me really of the whole field of kind of behavioral psychology, which is that we know we have all sorts of kind of cognitive biases, don't we? Um, but knowing we have cognitive biases doesn't really doesn't seem to really help us overcome. No, no, there's still always a conflict between our sort of rational understanding and our emotional response to it. But we can prefer when one day we might have looked back at our life and realized we haven't got any much time left. And the really important thing is to feel you've led a meaningful life. And the meaningful life really is having been useful, having helped others. And all your material possessions and acquisitions. It's been the old everyman story of the medieval mystery play. All that will stand for us is our good deed. Yes. Clearly, that kind of sense of, which I think the ancients had, really, which is I think they viewed life as a kind of aesthetic, that it was as if you, you had to look on your life as a, a painting and, and look look at the whole of it. Yeah, very much so, yes. You had to make your life into a meaningful work of art. And if you've had a good childhood and good parents, as I had, a lot of what that's about is doing things that your parents wouldn't be proud of if they were still with you. If you've had a bad childhood, then it's very different. And do we think that it's completely hopeless to think one can think one's way out of this? I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it is, but I, I kind of do this. I, I think it is, but I think if as one gets very old, perhaps one, our bodies become an increasing burden, death will feel like a release. Yes, because if you think of the philosophers, Henry, some of them seemed to reach a kind of settlement with death, whereas others remain kind of perplexed and terrified by it. So the intellect doesn't solve this, does it? My latest attempt to kind of rationalise this, which is hopeless, but I'm going to share it with you anyway, because it's just something I've been popped into my head a few weeks ago, was, was the idea that when one dies, one simply adds by one to the infinite number of places that one is not that I, I don't know, let me just take some random example. I am not currently sitting on the stoop of Joni Mitchell's house, drinking herbal tea with her and discussing her great greatest music. That is one of the infinite number of places that I am not now. And when I die, all that will happen is that one more will be added to this infinite number of lives. And I guess I came to that thought partly because of the, the point that I can't remember which philosopher made it, which is it's odd that we are terrified of the future without us when we're not terrified of the past that existed before us. Well, that was David Hume when Boswell spoke to Hume on his deathbed and said, surely, Mr. Hume, you're telling me worried about death. He said, no, I'm not worried about being dead, but I'm worried about not existing before I was born. And he said Hume died very happily and quite at peace. But I, I take a very practical view about this, which is why I campaign enthusiastically for assisted dying. As a doctor, I know that despite good palliative care, dying can be very unpleasant. And I want to leave this life more or less in control, dying in my own home, surrounded by my family, which is what ultimately all good palliative care 
and insist that Dying should be about. And I think that's terribly important. All religions ultimately involve the idea of some kind of afterlife. And even though Buddhism with the concept of nirvana, it's still sort of, there's something after death. But in our secular age, there isn't. All we have as we approach the end of our life is our loving family, if we had one, and we're lucky, and looking back on our life and thinking, well, I did okay. And that's, you can feel that. That is a huge privilege. But part of the fear, I think, is how we will respond when we know it is the end. Because I've been around enough people who have died to see that some people manage it much better than others. There is nobody for whom it is not a huge challenge. And of course, given how many of us end up dying of cancer and the way in which that disease tends to progress, and also the fact that the way palliative care is still not anything like at the level and consistency we'd want it to be, so it, I think part for me of this is knowing that one day, of course, I might get dementia and have no idea that I'm dying. I might die of a heart attack in a moment. But if I, which is more likely, I'm aware of my death, that part of the fear is how will I manage that? Will I just curl up into a ball and scream or will I find some kind of peace? Well, the answer is one doesn't know until it happens. My initial diagnosis was pretty scary. I had a PSA of 130. Only 4% of men who prostate cancer have a PSA that five. So in that is a period when I was waiting to get the various scans, which had showed how widespread the disease was. I didn't know if I had much of a future left or not. I vacillated between two contradictory feelings. One was intense fear, but simultaneously I thought, well, actually, I've been terribly lucky. I was 70 when the cancer was diagnosed. And I thought of all my patients who had died who were younger than me or were desperate to see their children grow up. And I thought, well, actually, I was now right to complain. But then the results came back after two or three weeks suggesting I might longer to live. And I sort of calmed down a bit. But I was always on the edge. I was always you know, worried. I still am now. I can't get away from that. I tried to make it a spur to try to do more. But the trouble is I've achieved quite a lot already with my life. And I'm not quite sure what I can do next, although I'm still busy at lecturing and teaching. Well, while we're on this point, Henry, I have to share with you a little passage that does give me comfort when I think with trepidation about this. And, and there's a little story that goes with this, actually. I interviewed the American author, Jonathan Franzen, many years ago, and we were talking about death and I read him this piece and what this is from you I'm probably aware of it it's from a famous interview that Dennis Potter did with Melvin Bragg and I read this passage I'm about to read to you to Jonathan Franson and he could not believe that this was he assumed it was prose and I said no no Potter just said this this is a transcript of an interview and Franson couldn't believe it so I'm going to read it and then we'll move on in the interview but this is what Potter said to Melvin Bragg and this Potter was days away from he was sipping morphine wasn't he while the interview was anyway he said this he said below my window in Ross when I'm working in Ross for example there at this season the blossom is out in full now there in the west early it's a plum tree. It looks like apple blossom, but it's white. And looking at it, instead of saying, oh, that's nice blossom, last week, looking at it through the window when I'm writing, I see it. It is the whitest, frothiest, blossomest blossom that ever there could be. And I can see it. 
Things are both more trivial than they ever were and more important than they ever were. And the difference between the trivial and the important doesn't seem to matter. But the nowness of everything is absolutely wondrous. And if people could see that, you know, there's no way of telling you. You have to experience it. But the glory of it, if you like, the comfort of it, the reassurance. Not that I'm interested in reassuring people. Bugger that. The fact is, if you see the present tense, boy, do you see it. And boy, can you celebrate it. So I find that comforting, Henry. Yeah, there's many interesting research using psychedelic drugs for people who die. The this can be immensely effective. So this loneliness, this intense awareness of the presence is very important. What I find terrifying is the thought that whenever I leave the world, you know, nature is out of joint. But with climate change, I'll be leaving this world to my grandchildren and my children. There's no longer a sense of the permanence and beauty of nature. Mm. And I find that very distressing. Well, that takes us to the next kind of element of this I want to discuss with you, Henry, which is that Ernest Becker thesis. I don't know if you've come across... I read the book. Yeah, it's a wonderful book, I think. And do you agree with Becker that, I mean, not necessarily that Freud was wrong in its death rather than sex that drives our subconscious, but do you agree with him that that our fear and our sublimation of our fear of death is something that drives a certain mania in life and, and drives, you know, this is a podcast partly directed to leaders, but drives our desperate attempt to kind of immortalise ourselves in our work, for example. Yes, I think it's very plausible. Um, I think awareness of one's own mortality. And yet when we're young, I don't think it's so powerful, perhaps. And maybe just the idea of dying oneself, I think, is pretty remote when we're young and healthy. But yes, and looking historically at the pyramids and cathedrals and this, all these built things, yes, this deep wish to go on river was profound. And I link it, Henry, to somebody once said to me, what, what is the most underrated quality of leadership? And I said stoicism. I said that, for example, deep down we all want to believe that when we stop doing our jobs that we will be missed forever. We will never, the hole that we will leave will never be replaced. But in fact, we all know that two weeks after we've left our job, there's a new boss and everyone's loyal to the new boss. They've already half forgotten you. And the new boss is talking about a much needed fresh start. And this is just inevitable. But I think sometimes our fear of that, our desperate attempt to somehow control what happens after we've gone in our work and in our life does drive a certain kind of mania. One of the things I'm very proud of is I introduced a meeting every morning in my department. And it, it's carried on, despite and I ran it, and it was very much my creation. And it's drawn from strength to strength. In fact, I still go into the hospital. I was there this morning teaching a bit. And I take great pride in the fact I'm no longer necessary. <laughs> but what I created has acquired a life of its own. And I've always felt very strong as a surgeon, you're teaching the next generation is, in a sense, just as important as what you're doing to your patients in front of you here and now. I have a duty to my trainees, future patients, just as I have a duty to the patient in front of me. And obviously, this can be a very difficult balance. I'm very happy with the fact that we're placeable and not indispensable. I think that's a great achievement. Yes, I agree. And I think something gets easier, actually, as you, as you get older. Now, there's another element of the book, Henry, that intrigued me and comforted me somewhat. There you are, a distinguished, you know, retired neurosurgeon, as you say, still teaching medics. 
But you have this very human fear of diagnosis, which you talk about in the book, that you had the symptoms of your cancer for some time and they were nagging away at you and you kind of knew you ought to get them checked out. And I, you see, I am like that. I mean, I, I run the NHS Confederation and, and I'm constantly banging on about the importance of community diagnostic hubs and prevention. And I feel like a terrible hypocrite because, you know, actually, you know, when my FIT test arrived, my bowel cancer test arrived, you know, it took me about two weeks to build up the courage to do the Blumen test. And then I spent the week waiting for the result, wandering around in a fog. I mean, I, what a fraud I am. It was comforting, Henry, to know I'm not alone. <laughs> You're a typical human being, is the answer. We all shy away from thoughts of death and the views that we want to. Denial is a very important coping mechanism. We're all biologically optimistic. But it's something that's going to need to change, isn't it? Because, and I think it will, in that, you know, we are in the midst of a kind of diagnostic revolution, you know, we are... It, it does worry me that we'll turn the entire whole of society into hypochondriacs. Because ultimately what matters is not how long we live, but whether we're leading a good life. And ultimately a good life is trying to make the world a better place. Doctors are very fortunate and privileged that you just do your job and you're helping others pay back to it. But I mean... Given all the problems in the world, there is so much that needs to be done. And that's really where meaning comes from. Long life is meaningless. And dying at the age of 90 as opposed to 80 is trivial. Whereas dying at the age of 50 is not trivial. So one of the other things that was fascinating in the book, Henry, is, of course, the tables were turned for you. You were a patient. And by all accounts... As a doctor, you were not only very good at your job, but you were thoughtful and you were caring. But but nevertheless, there are moments for you on the experience of being a patient which do lead you to think back to when you were a doctor and wonder whether you were always quite as thoughtful and compassionate and gave enough time, particularly when you had to give people bad news, for example. Well, firstly, you never get any feedback when you talk to patients on their families. Yes, never. So how can you get good at doing something if you'll ever get commented on or criticised? So most doctors probably think they're better than they really are at talking to patients, and that include myself. Having said that, because I went into medicine late, because I've been a seen patient, psychiatric patient for a while, because my son almost died from a brain tumour at the age of three months, because my mother was a refugee from the Gestapo from Nazi Germany, and I was brought up with a strong scepticism about authority and institutionalisation. In a sense, I became a patient that didn't tell me anything very new. But what it brought home to me, very powerful, was what I knew vaguely, how there's such an enormous gap between doctors and patients. And there has to be. As a doctor, you have to be detached to some extent. And the great challenge we all face is finding a balance between being kind and being scientifically detached. And most of us tend to fall towards being a bit too detached at times. But if you get too involved with your patients, obviously you can't do the work and you have to bear witness to a terrible thing. And you often have to lie to patients, giving them hope when there isn't really very much hope. Because most of us, if it's something really horrible, like a brain tumour, which is going to destroy your brain, I mean, how can anybody cope with that knowledge? It's incredibly difficult. You have a very substitute of personal experience. 
I tried to set an example, the way I spoke to patients and the way I taught. How effective it was, I have no way of knowing. But it is, I think, the central problem of medicine, is trying to find that balance between compassion and detachment. Yes, absolutely. And in my role running the NHS Confederation, I do quite a lot of thinking about the future, the however sustainable, resilient health service. And certainly, this question is very important. The number of people reaching the last year of life will rise by about a quarter over the next 10 years. We spent a huge proportion of our health resources on people in the last year, last thousand days of life. And I... One of the things I argue is we need, excuse the cliche, but we need a kind of new social contract with patients. We need to recognise that healthcare is the outcome of the work that professionals and patients do together. And things like anticipatory care, which is the kind of process where patients and their carers sit down with clinicians when they kind of know they're reaching that last thousand days or fewer days and agree how they want things to be managed. I spoke to a hospital chief executive a few months ago said what's the one thing you'd like to achieve and he said the one thing I'd like to achieve is that people are not don't arrive in my A&E department in the final few months of their lives for no reason at all other than that's what the system how it kind of responds so it seems to me there's a really big piece of work to be done on how it is we improve end of life and not only will that be better for patients but my goodness it would be better for the health service I, I completely agree Having said that, I don't think assisted dying will make a major change. Um, in countries where assisted dying is illegal, if only a very, very small proportion of deaths which are assisted. I think it's a very common phenomenon. I've seen both with members of my own family and also read about that when people go into additive hospice care, they express an interest in assisted dying, but as the end comes, they don't. My own feeling is most of us develop a sort of split consciousness. Part of us cannot accept we no longer have a future and kind of go on thinking we do, and part of us knows actually we don't. So you end up often taught into sort of two separate people. There's a sort of split personality. Yes, and a final couple of questions, Henry, but one of the arguments, of course, for assisted dying is that it will take away from doctors the terrible responsibility that doctors actually exercise day in day out which is having to make that decision themselves partly in the fear that 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 might lead to some kind of form of of retribution of litigation or whatever so we all know this of course we do that that doctors do make decisions at the end of people's lives not to carry on intervening pointlessly it's called medical paternalism and i strongly disapprove of it but it's what's going to happen unless we have a different system, isn't it? Yes, we need to be more open about this. I completely agree. But when some GPs at the beginning of the COVID pandemic so wrote to elderly patients, sort of encouraging them not to go to hospital or something or other, they got sort of shouted at and slated, although in a sense it was quite rational. So even though I'm always amazed with, with my older patients, so they seem just as keen to go on living as the rest of the younger patients. It is difficult. But as you say, it's something that needs to be discussed and addressed. And the great virtue of legislating assisted dying is things, it will bring it out into the open and then it can be discussed. At the moment, it can't. And it leaves far too much power in the hands of the doctor. So, Henry, last question. You talked a lot, you said in the book, and you've talked a lot in this conversation about the importance of 
at the end of life being able to look back with pride equanimity about one's life now i'm sure you've come across the you you may not have come across the work of bronnie ware who was a palliative care nurse who recorded what people said on their deathbeds about what they wish they'd been different and if i read you the list there are five things henry you'll be completely unsurprised by the list so the list is one i wish i'd had the courage to live a true life to myself not the life expected of me by others two i wish i hadn't worked so hard three i wish i'd had the courage to express my feelings four i wish i'd stayed in touch with my friends and five i wish i had let myself be happier i mean it's poignant unsurprising those moments henry when you really thought before you got the better news what were the things that you might have thought you would have done differently was there a change in that perspective obviously you should rightly be incredibly proud of your professional career but were there things you look back on you thought "Mm, i would have done that differently well that was just too realistic the person i was at the time couldn't have done differently well, and I mean, I don't want to be young again. I was so stupid. <laughs> but in a sense, I don't have any regret. To say I don't have any regret doesn't mean to say I think I didn't make a fool of myself and didn't trample on a lot of people. I was a difficult child. I don't think I was always the best of colleagues. I think I got better as time went by. Driving Rachel Park is a very good friend and a wonderful writer. Sort of says then the one thing nobody ever says. But I, I wished I'd worked harder. I'm jolly glad I, I did work very hard. My, my ethic has always been one of work, whether it's gardening or furniture making or brain surgery or writing. The idea of relaxation and lying back fills me with horror. Yes. As you were speaking, I was thinking, what would mine be? I think mine would probably reflect worse on me, but I'll, I'll say it nevertheless. I mean, the advice I'd want to give people is that lying is deeply corrosive. I'm not talking about white lies, but lying self-interestedly and particularly lying self-interestedly to people who deserve better is something which never ends well. So that would be my reflection on my life. Took me a long time to know. Well, Henry, it's been fantastic talking to you and I'm delighted that we've had this conversation and um, I do hope you will write, even if it's not about yourself, I do hope you'll write more books. Well, I'm desperate. I, I, I write compulsively. The problem is finding something I think is worth other people would want to read, so I'm thinking about it. I'm seriously writing some children's stories, but expanding the chapter of my last book about the various stories I tell my granddaughters. So I'm, I'm thinking about that. Fascinating. And of course, children are fascinated by death. I mean, every child goes through that moment of realisation, don't they? And they're about five or six. And that so maybe we should build on that slightly more. I think we tend to kind of say to children, oh, don't worry about it. Maybe we should engage children. Anyway, who knows? That's for another conversation. Henry, thanks so much for joining me. Matthew, that was fun. So one approach to death is not to think about it, but I suspect we kid ourselves if we think we can avoid that. But books like Henry's and other powerful testimony from friends of mine who've written books as they approach death, Kate Gross, Philip Gould, They do still, I think, convince me that if we can think about it, if we can talk about it, then we are just a little bit more likely to make the most of the final chapter that awaits us all. And if you've enjoyed this edition of Forward Vision, please leave a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does make a difference. Thank you. 
The Forward Institute is a non-profit organization with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.